The king and all his nobles turned to face me. Someone asked me what the animals were called. I replied that in the lands where it is found, the animal is called a jarbur. Then the king ordered his attendants to give me a pen and paper so that I could write the name down in my language. I took the paper and wrote the name in Arabic as well as French, for I knew how to read and write in French. After I had written the words and they'd showed them to his majesty the king, he studied me carefully. Who is this young man? he asked my master. What country is he from? My lord, this young man is from Syria, in the Holy Land, my master said, looking down. He belongs to the Maronite sect, which has been part of the Church of St. Peter since the time of the Apostles, from which it has never diverged, even to the present day. At that moment, Monseigneur the the Dauphin, the king's son, entered the room. He was of medium height and quite rotund. People like to point out that although both his father and firstborn son were kings, the latter being the king of Spain, the Dauphin was not a king himself. He came forward to examine the animals and was amazed. He had an enormous drawing in which all the animals in the world were represented, with the exception of these particular ones. He summoned the king's physician, Monsieur Fagon, a learned man, whose knowledge of medicine, natural science, and other such disciplines was unrivaled in all the world. Monsieur Fagon appeared and looked at the animals, and the king's son asked him if he knew anything about them. Are they mentioned in any books of natural science, he asked, and the physician replied that he'd never heard of such creatures, nor seen a drawing of them. Monseigneur the Dauphin called for an artist to add them to his illustration of wild beasts, and the king ordered the minister to hold the animals and their keeper in a place where they wouldn't be seen, until such time as Madame de Bourgogne returned from the hunt. She was the king's daughter-in-law, the wife of his son, the Duke of Bourgogne, and the king loved her like a daughter. That was the first time I had the great honor of seeing King Louis XIV, the Sultan of France, in his council room, and I faithfully recounted everything that took place without any additions or omissions. But I've also been brief about it, so the reader won't suspect that I dreamt all of this up. After all, I witnessed many things on my journey that I haven't set down in writing, and that haven't remained in my memory these past 54 years. As I now write this account of my voyage, it is the year 1763. I visited Paris in 1709. Is it possible I could have retained everything I saw and heard in perfect detail? Surely not. That was an excerpt of Hannah Diab's The Book of Travels, read to you by Elias Mahana, who is our guest on Bulak today. I'm Ursula Lindsay uh, in Amman, and uh, I'm joined by Marshall Link Squilly in Rabat, as usual, and by Elias Mohana, who is the translator of this um, extraordinary, um, hard to believe, as the writer himself suggests, a travelogue from the 18th century. Um, so thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure. And so for those who don't know Elias, he is Associate Professor of Comparative Literature at Brown University, the author of The World in a Book, Al-Nawairi, and the Islamic Encyclopedic Tradition, and translator of Shahab al-Din al-Nawairi's 14th century Arabic compendium, The Ultimate Ambition in the Arts of Erudition, which was chosen as a best book of 2016 by NPR and The Guardian, and editor of the Digital Humanities and Islamic and Middle East Studies. 
Um, Hannah's essays and criticism appear regularly in venues such as New Yorker, London Review of Books, New York Times, The Nation. And you can find more of his writing at eliasmahana.com, including a link to his old blog, which I hadn't seen in a very long time. Thank you again for joining <laughs> us today, Elias. Thank you for the invitation. It's really a pleasure to be here. And I'd forgotten how well that particular passage encapsulates that he is now a much older man looking back, although you, you, um, you begin it right after um, Lucas is unable to answer the, the same question, um, which is also right. an interesting moment in, in this great travel. So we, sh we should say who the, the figures in this scene that you just read from are. So our, our narrator, Hannah Diab, uh, who is meeting Louis XIV in France, um, tell us who he is. Yeah, so the scene takes place in Versailles in the early eighteen in the early seventeen hundreds, and uh, the narrator is a young Syrian man named Hanna Diab, who um, is a is a Syrian Christian from Aleppo, who has traveled across the Mediterranean in um, serving as the interpreter and guide and companion of a French Orientalist named Paul Lucas. And this meeting is sort of the climax of their of their trip. They have traveled from Syria um, through the Levant uh, and then across the Mediterranean, up uh, you know through through France um, to arrive in Paris. And um, they are having an audience before Louis the Fourteenth and his court. And um, they have brought with them. Um, a pair of jerboas, which are these little, um, very strange looking creatures uh, that they acquired um, from a contact of theirs who got them from Upper Egypt. And they're presenting them uh, to Louis XIV. And so this conversation um, begins with Louis XIV looking at these animals and, and, you know, sort of having his curiosity piqued by them and asking Paul Luca, the Orientalist, what they're called in Arabic. And Luca doesn't know. And so he turns to his Syrian interpreter who's holding them. And he says, basically, do you know what they're called? <laughs> um, and this is, this is Diab's moment in the sun. And he sort of steps forward and, and he speaks directly to Louis XIV and is summoned over to him. And um, this is one of actually several uh, times that he meets the king and kind of engages with him. Um, so that's that's the context for this particular scene. Yeah, he also takes something out of the king's hand, which is apparently shocking. I I think I might have made the same error myself. <laughs> yeah, later on in their uh during uh Hannah's time at Versailles, he's uh you know, in the same room with uh, Louis the 14th and some other people and he um he sort of takes a candlestick, I think, or a candelabra or something right. out of the king's hand, uh, which was, you know, a shocking thing for someone <laughs> to do. Apparently it was a no-no. Yeah, I, and I think it's it seems very kind of you to call uh, Lucas an orientalist. I, I kind of would side with um, Paulo Lemus Horta in his, in his afterward more as a treasure hunter and <laughs> um, a sort of tomb raider. Versus yes, seeming yeah. like a scholar uh, oriented. Yeah, he wasn't much of a scholar. He he was kind of a blowhard, um, 
somebody who fancied himself a scholar and an adventurer and an antiquarian. Um, and but, but he did have a commission, you know, from mm. the from the French court to go out and and, and do some collecting. So he he saw himself very much um, as being in the same league as some of the eminent uh, scholars of the Orient who were circulating um, in Paris at this time. And he he thought that he belonged to their company basically. But he didn't he didn't have the languages. Um, he didn't have uh, the historical knowledge clearly. Right. In and fact, interestingly, one of the. Oh, Oh, I was just going to say one of the, more than once, one of the reasons that he states for bringing Dia back with him is that he needs to bring back a man who speaks Arabic to the king. Like the king has requested that he bring back a person who speaks Arabic. Right. And is this because Galand is aging or or is that not related Um, to Anton Galand? It's um, so at this particular moment, uh, Galland is actually not yet the professor of Arabic at the uh, okay. at the Collège de France. Um, so this at this particular moment, um, the position of professor of Arabic is held by a person named Pierre Dipi, who is a very interesting individual. He is also a Syrian, uh, I think, also a Syrian from Aleppo, and Pierre Dipi had been in France for. Uh, a long time, for several decades, had married a French woman um, and had served as the um, professor of Arabic and other some other Semitic languages at the Collège de France, or I guess what was called the Collège Royal at that time. And he, um, and DP was, um, I think that he had, he had recently died or retired and he was trying to have his nephew uh, appointed as his successor. Confusingly, his nephew was also named Pierre DP. Um, and his nephew had been, was serving as, uh, he, he had a different position. Um, and so, and Galland, in the meantime, uh, had been, you know, he had been working as a scholar in the, um, in the, in the library. Um, and he thought that the job really belonged to him, uh, and had been angling for it. So, um, it seemed, it seems that Luca, you know, there was he knew that there was going to be a kind of open competition for this position, and he had promised Diab that he could get him a job in the in the library, um, in the Arabic library, handling manuscripts. It what's interesting is that Galland apparently regarded this young uh, Syrian man as a threat of some kind. Uh, which seems ridiculous because Diab, you know, yes, he was linguistically talented and gifted and, and so on. But the idea that he would have been appointed the professor of Arabic, I think, is kind of ludicrous. Um, and so, um, and but but there is evidence to suggest that, that Galland did maybe feel a little bit threatened, was a little bit worried that the job might go to like a native speaker of Arabic because he confuses Diab with the DP clan oh. Oh, um, okay. a couple of times in his uh, in his memoirs he refers to Hanna as Jean DP on a couple of uh, occasions so uh, there's a kind of interesting conflation between him and and these other uh, local um, Syrians who who were working as scholars but it because it does seem in these memoirs that Galand was part of the reason that uh, Dieb was sort of tricked or forced out of of France. 
Absolutely. And that's one of the interesting things uh, that I hope someone will write an, uh, an article about. Um, Galland's uh, or Diab's interpretation of why, of how he ended up leaving France in, is it's sort of a, it's a fascinating whodunit uh, right. that involves Galland. You know, he um, basically, uh, the way he tells the story is that Galland came to him and um, said to him, you know, you've been so good to me. You've told me all these stories from the Thousand One Nights. Um, I owe you one, basically. And if, and if there's ever anything I can do for you, just call on me. And so he, but then, um, so Galland comes to him one day and he says, I'd like to, I'd like to do you a favor. I have a, I have a great opportunity for you. And the opportunity is that he introduces him to a nobleman, a French nobleman, who basically says to him, I want to commission you to travel around the Orient and collect things for me. You've had this formative experience traveling around with Paul Luca, you know, um, what this business is all about. You know how to find valuable coins and manuscripts and antiquities. And I want you to do that for me. Um, and, and I'm going to pay you to do it. I'll, I'll, I'll pay you a salary. And, uh, you know, Diab really agonizes over this choice. He's not sure he's going to do it. He doesn't want to betray his master, Luca, who had promised to him to get him a job. But at the same time, that job wasn't really appearing. And he was beginning to think that maybe it was never going to appear. So he finally decides, you know what, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to tell my master that I have to go home. And then my, 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 I got a letter from my family. I need to return. I can't stay here anymore. And he accepts the position. And the guy, the nobleman tells him, okay, you go down to Marseille and wait for the, you know, the letters of investiture that have to be signed by the king. They'll, come, they'll arrive in Marseille. And from there, you'll depart on your journey. So Diab does that. And the, net, the letters never show up. And while he's in Marseille, so he was, you know, he's like, what happened? Like, uh, I got totally mm -hmm. duped. And that guy, that, that nobleman was a cheat. And, um, and while he's in Marseille, this mysterious stranger appears and is chatting with him. Like, I, I imagine the scene, like they're sitting in a tavern and, and he kind of says to him, uh, and they get to talking and, and Diab tells him his life story as he's wont to do. And the guy says to him, let me tell you something. The person who tricked you was not the nobleman. The person who tricked you, or and it wasn't your master, the person who tricked you was the old man, that is, Antoine Gallon. He arranged this whole thing to just get you out of Paris because he wanted the job that your master had promised to you. Um, and... And, and I believe and, it. And I'm believe so mad at the at Galland by the end, after reading the afterward, I was just burning with anger. But we yeah. should say now, since we've introduced, since we've, in, since we've been talking about Galland, we should, we should now, we should talk about this connection. So, so, yeah. so Antoine Galland repays Hannah Diab for the gift of some of the most iconic stories in the thousand and one nights with this betrayal. So we, we should talk about Diab's we should talk about it. Contribution yeah. to kinda, the thousand and one nights. That's right. We, we sort of we jumped, jumped into the, the like end. intrigue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but that's good. That's fine. That's how, we, that's how we roll around here. So, um, yeah, please. Okay. So, um, Antoine Gallon is a, was a French scholar from a poor family who, uh, despite, you know, being born to this poor family, was recognized at an early age as having, um, you know, intellectual precocity and sort of rose 
up through the ranks, um, was recognized at school for being very smart and was able to, you know, earn a degree um, in, or, you know, to study Eastern languages and then to travel around the East, um, you know, working for various, I think, uh, you know, diplomatic figures before he returned to France. And, um, you know, he basically collected manuscripts and studied them and he worked on the, uh, on the great dictionary, the, um, the Bibliothèque Orientale of Derbello and was involved in, you know, various sort of Orientalist activities. At some point during his career, um, he came upon a, um, he came upon the Sinbad stories, a manuscript of the Sinbad stories, and he found them very interesting. And he decided to publish them, uh, publish a translation, a French translation of them, which was very successful. Um, and, you know, more or less inaugurated um, the French public's interest in these Arab uh, or Oriental tales. After the success of the Sinbad stories, he was sort of on the hunt for other kinds of stories like it or other sorts of manuscripts like it. And you remember the figure that I mentioned, Pierre D.P., the, the, the figure, at the, the, the scholar, the Syrian scholar who was a professor of Arabic. He uh, introduced Diab to a Syrian, 14th, a 14th century Syrian manuscript of the Thousand One Nights. Um, and that remains the oldest manuscript that we have of that text, uh, the, you know, the, the oldest complete manuscript of the Knights, and it's held today at the uh, Bibliothèque Nationale in, in Paris. And um, Galon set about translating The Thousand One Nights into French um, and published it. And that was the first European translation of the Knights, um, the first time the Knights was translated into a European language and basically marks the beginning of the the career of the thousand one nights as a work of world literature before the european before the french translation it was really an you know a work of arabic literature that was not even uh an example of like high arabic literature it was popular literature mm -hmm. um and you know it was like one of many different kinds of story collections that circulated with Galon's translation, it becomes, over the next um, couple hundred years, a major work of world literature because it's translated into all, all the European languages and it inspires um, the, the phenomenon that we now know as Orientalism, the cultural phenomenon uh, that spans all the fine arts and the performing arts, um, fashion, um, and... I mean, lingers or not even lingers, endures very strongly to this day in music videos and graphic novels and uh, just, you know, cultural attitudes towards the East. That all can be traced back to Galon's translation of the Knights. So it's a tremendously important um, work of translation, probably, you know, one of the most important translations of any work in world history. I mean, it, you could say it's up there with uh, the King James Bible, with all kinds of um, works of world literature that, that are tremendously influential beyond the context in which they were, were written. So after Galon published his translation of that manuscript, he, he sort of got to the end of it. And I think it had something like 282 nights. And we don't know that he was baffled by this fact, but I like to imagine that he kind of got to the end of it and it was like, there's only 282 and the work <laughs> is called 1001. There's something wrong, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And so he, what we do know uh, is that 
he was friends with Paul Luca. And when Paul Luca returned to Paris, uh, accompanied by Diab, they would have, you know, Galon would go over to their house in the evening sometimes and have some coffee and sit by the fire and chat. And he was interested, you know, he was interested in Hanna because Hanna was an Easterner and he wanted to talk to him about things. And he got to talking to him about the Knights. His recent, you know, his recent translation, and he said to him, "I don't have, you know, I uh, it only has two hundred eighty-two nights." And so, according to Diab's um, memoirs, and according to, um, more, more importantly, according to Galon's memoirs, because those are much more um, detailed about his relationship with Diab, he says, uh, "Diab said, oh, I know stories from the Thousand Nights. I can tell you some. I can tell you some other stories that you don't, that maybe you didn't find in your manuscript.'" So he proceeds to tell him a bunch of stories. I think, I don't remember how many exactly. I think it was. He said something uh, like 15, I, I, I thought. Yeah, uh, yeah. Although it's not all of them make, make it into the uh, manuscript, which That's is sad, correct. right? Yeah, not all of them make it into the, he doesn't choose all of them uh, for translation. Uh, but the, of the ones he does choose, there are several that actually go on to become the most famous stories in the nights. So if, if you were to ask someone, you know, if I say like Arabian Nights to you, what comes to mind? Probably, you know, Aladdin and the Magic right. Lamp. Yeah. Alibaba and, and Alibaba. Right. Yeah. So these are the stories that, that Diab tells him. And um, the question, of course, is, are these stories authentic? Were they ever part of the Thousand and One Nights? Um, we don't have, we have never found them in a manuscript that is older than Galon's translation. We, there are plenty of examples of, of Aladdin and Alibaba in, ma, in Arabic manuscript that come after Galon, Galon publishes them in French translation, which suggests that they were basically copied or Translated retranslated back. back into Arabic. Um, I love that. I, yeah. I love all these twists and turns with the with the knights. I love this yeah. way. This Except for, you know, Hena Dieb not getting his proper due and credit as a fixer, a translator, uh, as the, as an author. No, I'm absolutely, I, I'm, <laughs> I don't like that. Well, part of the story. <laughs> that's, I, th I think in a way that's something that this, that, that, that this book and this translation, hmm. right. It's existence addresses. It's, it's, you're getting a story that wasn't there before. You're getting confirmation of the source of these nights, which I think for a long time was somewhat in doubt. People didn't know if Galant himself had made them up. And, and you're getting this account of the whole trip to Europe because before he arrives in Paris and, you know, is at court and is telling stories, there's a whole volume of just this incredible cross Mediterranean trip that has like more adventure than you can you know, pirates and shipwrecks and lions and, yeah. you know, miracles. And it's just nonstop. Um, it, it, and, uh, and he gets to tell his story. I mean, he went back to Aleppo, like as, as it was said in the excerpt that you read at the beginning. And then 50 years later, as an old man wrote his version. And that's what, what we have here. Um, and also the version that was missing from from Lucas's own account, because apparently he didn't mention that Hanna Diab was traveling with him once. Right? That's He's right. completely yeah. erased from the French. He's such Orientalist a parachute account. reporter, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, Lucas was pathetic. Um, 
And it's, but it's sad. I agree because Diab really looks up to him, you know? I, um, again, I felt like so that in the beginning, but I really felt that there was some kind of change or growth or like he begins, he shows us as a young man. Yes, he's definitely fully uh, whatever looking up to him. But by the time, yeah. you know, Lucas comes back to Aleppo when he's back there, I don't feel that, I feel that their relationship has changed somewhat. Yeah. Or maybe it, I'm it just probably, willing that to be, I don't know. No, no, I think probably did change. I think that he had, uh, there was a sort of um, feeling of betrayal, especially after he learned that um, Luca got the job from the nobleman. Mm, you know yes, what I mean? So exactly. like, <laughs> so the job that, um, the job that he was supposed to get, I mean, it kind of like Galon and Luca stabbed him in the back, you know? Right. Um, they they sort of conspired to to get him out of Paris, and Luca was like, "I'll take that job," you know. Right, and it's not like uh, Dieb is, you know, sort of he never paints himself as angelic, which I found so immensely charming and you know whatever modern about this work is that not mm-hmm. he not only expresses self doubt, but he paints himself in you know in this such a sometimes bad humorous uh, human light, especially when he's pretending to be a doctor on the way back. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> he <laughs> never really says wonderful. I learned all the all the I he never says I learned everything that I needed to know. He 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 actually says like I was faking it and right. I was terrified the right. entire time. <laughs> yeah, well, so, I thought I was about to be arrested. That's one of the interesting things is that in the early in his in his original trip as a young man with Luca, he talks a lot about Luca presents himself as a doctor, right? And you're to the, yes. to the people, to the communities that they travel through. And it's one of the ways that he gains uh, respect and has people come to meet him. And then he actually trades his medical knowledge for artifacts, for things that he's looking for. Yeah. And, and Diab recounts all this and you can never, I mean, he seems to genuinely admire Lucas' supposed knowledge, medical knowledge, which, and I think this is just sort of fairly a reflection of those times is sort of right on the borderline between like science and magic. Like, you know, I don't know. It all seemed like nonsense to me. He ground up some pearls and what? <laughs> I know, but Marsha, that's the way people, I mean, I, I think that is the way medicine was practiced. Right. Like it was, this isn't particular to Luca that he's doing this. And we are left wondering, like Diab seems to genuinely, but he gives multiple instances in which Luca not only cures himself, but cures Diab and cures other people. And again, it's done through, you know, stones and stuff. And then there's lots of anecdotes about elixirs and magical stones and, you know, amulets, but Diab's, you know, seems to put credence in all of this. He does admire it as a form of knowledge in the first part, but then when he's practicing it himself and when he's supposedly curing someone and then the fever comes back and he thinks the guy is going to die and that he's going to be in deep shit about this. Th- yeah. Then he has a different <laughs> attitude towards it. But I think that I think that he his uh, the different attitude comes from him being like I'm faking it. There is something to know here, but I don't know it. I'm just pretending. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do think that he believes that it all that his master was, as he says, like um, versed in all the sciences and knew everything that he needed to know about gemology and medicine and all these things. Um, and he, you know, he says he cured my mother and you know, all right. This stuff. He definitely did seem to believe that, although 
Um, his mother did relapse. So right. apparently when it's, when the necklace fell off. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that he, and I find very touching, like the things that he notices in the travelogue that he's interested in. One of them is these forms of knowledge, right? Technology and science and medicine and things that he hasn't encountered before and that he's very impressed with and that he records very scrupulously, right? I mean, it's it's interesting how interested he is in these other forms of knowledge that are out there in the world and that he, you know, sees people practicing. Um, what I found his opinion of his master. So there is admiration, but then there's multiple anecdotes that he tells where Luca just comes off in such a bad light Mm. and you can't help thinking like Diab must be aware. He tells them very neutrally. He doesn't condemn or criticize. And, but I'm thinking about, for example, the story in which they get into an argument with a man they've hired to carry some of their baggages right. on this pack yeah. animal. And yeah. in the course of the argument, a case falls off. Like the man gets angry. And so he throws all their baggages off of his donkey. And Luca believes that a case full of wine that he's traveling with, because as Diab notes, he cannot drink water without wine, has been broken and then has a temper tantrum, uses the two words in Arabic he knows to insult the man who he thinks has broken his wine. And then because he's insulted him so much, a, a bunch of angry people from the town come out, you know, to take the man's side. And at that point, Luca runs away and hides and leaves Diab alone to handle, you know, a basically a lich mob Right, right. He, you know, he's he's so, and I feel like he could not, he te- and he tells his story and he doesn't condemn him in any way, but, but these stories show such, you know, cowardice and selfishness and dishonesty. You kind of wonder if he must have some, you know, yeah. intent to show what, what Luca was really like. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. I mean, that that story, if you, you couldn't really paint a, a, a better caricature of like a Frenchman in the Middle East uh, <laughs> seen from the perspective of the of the of the Easterner, you know, who's like, oh, yeah, they, they come in and they and they smash their bottles of wine and they blame us, you know. Um, and they insult us, even though they don't speak right. the language. And then they yeah. run off to leave this underling to deal with right. the consequences of his incredibly rude behavior. And that's the other thing that I, th- I found very interesting. And, and, you know, what I think you're pointing to, and what you found just, I think, more infuriating than interesting, Marcia, <laughs> is, is, is this the relations between people in power, whether they're, a lot of them are foreigners like Luca and consuls and so on, but also sort of local potentates and their ego and their, the things that they want and are trying to get. And then the way people like Diab who are, you know, working for them always have to sort out like an accommodation and avoid violence often and, and avoid conflict and smooth the egos of their bosses who are basically, you know, always making unreasonable demands 
and and like nearly provoking, you know, civil conflict at some point or another. I'm thinking of the story where Diab's in Fayum. Uh, I think it's the time where somebody some in one town they visit, people object to him wearing a turban. Oh, oh so right. he's yeah. knocked yeah. off. But then <laughs> Their host is deeply offended that his turban has been removed and insisted he put his <laughs> turban back on. And poor Diab is just trying to avoid getting killed. And 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 him and the other, you know, people who are not the big guys have to kind of work out some sort of accommodation because the people above them are just making all unreasonable demands based on, you know, their egos and how they want things to look. Like the consul wants Dieb to be walking around in his turban and that's all he cares about. Yeah. He's like, that's a very funny, that's a very funny moment because he's like, um, yeah, please put your turban on. And then, and, and they go into dinner and then Dieb comes in and, and Luca or the, or the consul's like, where's the turban? He's like, oh, I decided uh, I wasn't really going to wear it. I thought maybe not, you know, I don't really need to wear it. And, and Luca looks at him. He's like, put the turban on, you know? <laughs> and yeah, I agree. One of, the, one of the things that's really interesting to me about this, um, and it reminded me in so many places of reading A Tale of Two Cities, is is to the extent to which Hanat Dieb sees the world around him. He sees himself, he sees um, the impoverished people, he sees the wealthy people, he sees Luca, he sees... You know, so Luca doesn't see him. Luca is, you know, sees, I don't know, straight ahead and above, maybe. Ancient but, coins that he can take to the king. That's all he sees. Right. He sees mm-hmm. anything he can get his grubby fingers on. But um, Hanadieb sees people starving and freezing. And I think that's actually quite unusual for, at least for texts that I've read of of this period of like, a recognition of impoverished people, people who are um, charged with crimes um, and their lives and and what they're going through. And I found that passage where he leaps from the the one-legged man who's being beaten, one-legged veteran who's being beaten for, for begging to some like super opulent religious procession just so striking of the, you know, the immense differences in, um, in, in, in wealth in, in Paris and in France at that time. Yeah. He was, he was definitely, um, he was a people watcher. He was interested in, um, in details. He, he pays a great deal of attention to clothing. Um, he's super interested in food. Um, he's interested in urban planning. You know, there's certain themes that return over and again. Um, he's very interested in women and, uh, the differences between women in the West and women in, in the East, you know, mm. and he's, and he's super interested in the, in, in women's clothing and in the veil and, th- and things like that. Um, which is, I think, interesting and a little bit maybe uncomfortable for our contemporary discussions about this stuff. You know, there's like, um, because it's 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 dangerous territory, you know, to get into that whole, uh, especially in France, you know, <laughs> veiling oh, well, and women's where bodies. Where he was like, and, yes, trying to convince the, his friend's wife to take off the veil. Yeah, yes. to take but off was, the veil. Right, you know? but he was also just sort of interested in women's lives in general in a, in a way that was surprising to me. Like the the woman in France who supposedly stole some dishware from her boss right. 20 years ago ended up being 
you know, um, killed for it. Uh, well, I don't remember. Was she hanged? What? I don't remember what happened to her. But in any case, <laughs> one of those gruesome things that he read about right. in La Sentence. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting to see how this text, you know, kind of engages with these these um, debates about, you know, relations between East and West. And, um, and uh, you know, I think I, it'll be read in different ways. Also, his his attitude about about people of different faiths. Mm-hmm. You know, he's uh, Dieb is somebody who is who sees the world through uh one could say like sectarian or yeah, confessional sure. lenses um or who whose whose vision of the world is very much informed by which religion somebody is from and um that it's something like how do we interpret that some people would say well like that's just part of the the vocabulary of identity at this time uh, other I mean, people would also, say yeah go ahead I was going to say it's it also seems like the world you could say that the world he experienced was very much shaped by those forces. Sure. I mean, yeah. they go every town they go into, they kind of have to situate themselves absolutely you know, partly yeah. on the basis of religious sect. It's it seems like an important kind of parameter in most people's social relations. Right. But there is a kind of there is a, a school of thought that um in the academic study of uh, Islam and of the social history of the of the, um, of the Near East, especially the Levant, that suggested that this these kinds of calculations were really a kind of Western importation, and that you know sectarianism is a uh, is a phenomenon that arises in the confrontation of of uh, Europe and and the Middle East. Um, so, in some sense, Diab's travelogue actually challenges that completely you know he is he is extremely you know he he has problems with like greek orthodox (laughs) he's like constantly (laughs) like complaining about the orthodox because he's a catholic um he sees everybody in terms of whether they're sunni or shiai or uh or you know greek orthodox or this or that um syriac you know um but somebody else might be like yeah but you know he's writing this work at the end of a long life in which he had a lot of contact with with Europeans, and so maybe he had internalized their values and their their view of things, and maybe this is all a, a reflection of that. So it'll be interesting to see how how people read this text. Hmm. Yeah, there's definitely. Uh, I, I even found sort of such a distinction between tonally the the introduction and the afterward, which of course are written by two different people. Right. seeing this text through two different lenses. I mean, the other thing that's, I think, important to say about the text is just that it's like a really enjoyable story. Like mm, he mm. is a great storyteller. I went into this not knowing much about it. And to be honest, I was surprised by how delightful I found it as a narrative. And some of this is also credit to you, Elias, for the translation for how it reads. Um which it, it just flows. And you can tell that he is a storyteller. Like he has that gift of there's never a dull moment. And he throws in an anecdote here and he goes from an observation to a story to, you know, um, but, but he has that quality of a good storyteller of like never letting your attention flag. Right. 
and yeah. being confident in selecting things that are interesting. And, and, and just move and weaving the stories together, the way in which he tells the story of the the marriage proposal he had, and then oh, yeah. that Armenian guy uh, and him getting uh, you know uh, pulled in and arrested because he was friends with this guy and they were torturing mm-hmm. torturing his friends. The way in which he weaves those two stories together, and then is like, and now back to this, and this was the context. So yeah, now back to this. Yeah. I was. You know, I was really on the edge of my seat in a way I can't think of any other text that was written in yeah. the 1700s that made me feel that way. You know, that, that I'm glad you brought that up, Marshall, because like um, that particular story. So why does he tell the story of the, just to kind of set the context here? He's like, he's getting ready to tell you about his, uh, about the reason that he leaves France and um and about his decision about the nobleman and like, oh gosh, what am I going to do? And he's like, but I'm going to tell you this other story first uh, about this friend of mine who was another Syrian um, living in Paris. Um, and and it's a story of like how, you know, basically this guy um, was going to, you know, came up with this ruse about like marrying somebody uh, in order to essentially make some money uh, in this sort of illicit way. And I think that Diab tells us, gives us this story in order to, for us to appreciate the stakes of, of his, the lie that he's going to tell his mm. uh, master mm, mm, about mm. why he's going back to, back to uh, Syria. Um, so he's like kind of setting the reader up to understand that, that Syrians weren't able to just like, you know, move about freely without considering, you know, they were kind of a, in a precarious situation, not just Syrians, but any kind of traveler. Um, and I think he was, he's, he's creating an atmosphere um, for the person who's reading this to understand what it's like to be a foreigner in, in this place. Um, and a lot of the, his stories feature elements that are familiar to readers of the nights. There's a lot of narratives within narratives um, that, you know, in framed narratives. And there's a lot of kind of uh, creating connections between the frames uh, through, you know, repeating motifs, um, which really kind of is important to understand um, that, yes, he's a storyteller, he's an oral storyteller. um, And, but that doesn't mean that this particular, that this narrative wasn't carefully thought out or somehow rehearsed um Mm. it must have been rehearsed a great deal before it was set down because there's a lot of foreshadowing um that happens there's a lot of details like here's another great example um at the very beginning of the travelogue when he first meets paul luca and they're traveling and they get to tripoli uh in lebanon luca says to him he looks at him and he's he's like do you have any other clothes and uh Diab's like, no, these are my clothes. These are my traveling clothes. And he's like, don't you have like nicer clothes? And he's like, yeah, I have nice clothes, but they're back home in Aleppo. And Luca says to him, you need to write to your brother in Aleppo and have him send you your clothes, send you the nice clothes that you have. Send them to Saida, because we're on our way to Saida in Lebanon, and we're going to be leaving from there to Cyprus. He he needs to send you your clothes. And Diab's like, okay, why? <laughs> and Luca's like, because when you, when you, um, when we get to Paris, and you are presented before the king, you're gonna be need, you're, you're gonna need to have some nice clothes. Now, what he meant was he didn't mean like you, you need to look presentable because 
they could easily have gotten him some nice clothes when they got to France. What Luca meant was you need to look like an Easterner. You need to look the part. You have to look folkloric. You got to look like Disneyland, you know, uh, Aleppo, right? That's what he meant. And and um, when when they arrive in Paris, this is like a whole volume later, volume two, and they, Luca looks at Aleppo, uh, looks at uh, Diab, and he's like, "Now's the time to put on your clothes from Aleppo. Remember those clothes that I told you about three hundred pages ago? Yeah, though that now is the time you got to put those on because we're going to go meet Louis the Fourteenth, and you need to look the part uh, if you want to get this job. You need to look like a you know one of those what a Frenchman thinks that a Syrian." you know, should look like. And, and, uh, Diab returns to this theme of clothing over and again, he has to wear his clothing in France. People remark on it. All the princesses are like checking him out and like, you know, uh, looking at his outfit when he's in Versailles. Um, so like there's a, the point is that there's a lot of this foreshadowing that goes on that one doesn't associate with story with oral storytelling, but that's part of the craft of it. Yeah, no, I mean, it made me. Th- it makes me think of uh, you know, Muriel St- Spark. Apparently, gets the whole novel in her head first, and and then only then she writes it all out exactly as it is. Apparently, so you know, maybe. Uh, cause, and when you mentioned the clothing, it it makes me think about the very beginning when there he is. Suppose I mean, of course, we don't have the first few few pages, but where we, we right, do begin. Right is he's looking at himself in these new clothes that he's supposed to now become a monk. And he's, it, it seems right, right. that he didn't want to become a monk because he's like, look at these, I can't dress like this for the rest of my life. This is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. He he's trying on different identities. Yeah. I don't think he was cut out to be a monk, but <laughs> so what, what do we know? Cause I was very curious about this, the time lapse between when the story happens and when the story is when the manuscript is dated. So do you, I mean, is, do we know anything about, you say, do you think that he like told people these stories a lot or that there were, that he was working on this manuscript like for years and years? I mean, do you have any ideas about how it was like composed? I don't think that we know that. Um, We have some data about him in the time that, you know, after he came back from France, he tells us, you know, I moved back to Aleppo. I got set up with a shop. Um, he became a textile merchant. And then a few years later, his master shows up again. Luca shows up and they kind of like patch things up and they, they go off on a, you know, a, a expedition, a brief expedition outside of Aleppo, you know, just like for old time's sake kind of thing. And, um, and then after that, you know, we have like a census record of the Maronite community in Aleppo, I think in 1740, and he shows up in it and he has, he's married and he has children. Um, and so I think that, you know, he settles into like a upper middle class life or, you know, a merchant's life in Aleppo in the first half of the 18th century. And, um, and maybe he, you know, he tells us, he, he, he says this interesting thing about how he would often, sometimes he would talk to different groups. Uh, there's, there's a point in the, um, in the travelogue where he says, and I told this story to some groups that I would speak to. So maybe he kind of like had a, mm. he would go to maybe churches and, and tell, talk to people or talk to societies about, uh, he'd be invited to kind of like tell stories about his, his trip. Um, so I think he must have kept these stories alive and maybe he wrote them down at some point, 
but it was only towards the end of his life that he was like, I need to really kind of create a, a, uh, an actual account, you know, a book. Mm. Yeah. I like to imagine that people were sort of demanding it of him after all these years, he's (laughs) been telling these stories over and over again. Come on, you've got to write it all down. Right. And there was, you know, there was a, there was a precedent for this. Um, we know that he had, uh, he must've had a, a library because, um, so there's another important, um, travelogue written by an Arab Christian, um, at the end of the 17th century by Elias al-Mausili, who was an Iraqi priest, um, who was the first Arab, um, to travel to the new world and to write a travelogue about it. So, um, he travels to basically to South America, Peru, Mexico, Central America also. Um, and in like the 1680s, I think. And he, he, he writes a travelogue about this experience, which is a fascinating, you know, brief work. And we know that, or we suspect that Diab owned a copy of that text. And so he, it seems that he might have been interested in travel narratives and people who had had an experience like his. Um, which wasn't that unusual an experience. I think that's something else that we have to understand about this time. There was a lot of movement uh, between the Levant um, and Europe at this time, especially by Arab Christians. Um, and he there keeps was a running lot, into yeah. like exactly he'll be in some he'll be in some city somewhere in in Europe <laughs> and he, and he'll run into some some guy from his neighborhood in Damascus or something. Exactly. I mean, he 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 recounts those kinds of encounters a lot, and then they sit down and give each other a lot of advice and tell each other their stories and yeah yeah. There was a, there were a lot of Arab Christians in places like Rome and in Marseille, Livorno. uh, and in Paris, and that's something that I think we don't normally associate with this period. Right. And they all seemed to know each other. And there was that terrible scene at the end where, you know, he had lied about his whole identity and then he realized, wait, no, I know that guy. And that guy probably knows me too. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And And then then there's, um, you know, like, and they're not all, I mean, a lot of them are sort of peddlers, um, and merchants, petty merchants of different kinds. But some of them are, are high ranking people, um, like the 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 cardinal's right hand man, um, he wasn't Arab, but he um, belonged to one of these European merchant families in Aleppo. So there again, there's a kind of like blurring the boundary, um, this hybridity. You know, there's there's native Arab, Arabs or Syrians or whatever you want to call them, Levantines, but then there's also this like historic European mer- uh, mercantile community that uh, had been there for in some cases, you know, multiple generations and people had grown up in these places and were fluent in the language and and had friends and contacts. So that's part of the network that he's traveling through. Mm. And then after he wrote this, do we, do we know if and how it circulated? I I mean, between, I don't think we do. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I know that, um, it was, somehow ended up in the collection of um i want to say paul spot like it was in his his um collection and then he eventually ends up in the vatican's library um and i don't recall exactly you know what its history was before that if it was held in a private uh family collection or if it you know found its way to like the maronite uh, uh church's 
um, uh, collection of manuscripts in Aleppo. Um, but it's basically, it kind of is lost uh, for a long time. And, and even when it goes to the Vatican, it's not clear, like there, it wasn't cataloged as uh, under Hanna Diab's name because the first few pages are missing. Um, and, or at the end, I think he, he is identified or, or in the, um, in the sort of paratext he's identified, but it wasn't, you know, nobody put two and two together and, and, and realized, oh, wait a second, this is the guy that spoke to Antoine Gallon until, um, the manuscript was discovered by Jérôme Lantin, um, I believe in the eighties. Or I think it was the nineties. Yeah. In the nineties. Yeah. So Professor Lantin, who is, you know, a great, uh, one of the great scholars um, of, uh, well, many different things, uh, but um, Arabic, uh, the history of the Arabic language and Arabic linguistics and Middle Arabic texts and all kinds of things, um, discovered this work and um, began working on a translation and a study of it. And so the, the, the French translation uh, came out a few years ago um, and... Uh, you know, is, is an excellent translation of, of this work. So is it possible that this is the only copy, the, the one that ended up at the Vatican was the only copy ever made? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Wow. Uh, then and that's we're not unusual. Pretty lucky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We are pretty lucky. It, it wouldn't be unusual for it to be the only copy. Mm. So then he would have maybe written it just for himself and his community and it was put on some shelf yeah, somewhere. Or his family. And- Right. Yeah, you know, to give to his children or his grandchildren. I mean, that would be a really awesome manuscript to have in your little family library. You know, right. Great, great <laughs> uncle so-and-so's accounts of his trip. But that's a question I had too, or something that I sort of wondered about, which was what what was the point of writing this for him or what was it in its intended audience or purpose? I mean, beyond the sort of universal, you know, and, and not necessarily needing any justification, like impulse to tell one's story and, and, and to, and to share one's adventures. But I did want to wonder like how, I don't know, why did he sit down as an old man and like, what did you think the book would sort of do for others or be for others? I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> um, I, I think it's impossible to know without um, a better understanding of this period, which is not that well understood. I mean, this is um, it's attracted a lot more attention in recent years, the 18th century. But for a long time, this was like kind of like the black hole. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it the black hole? Because, you know, we're interested in the 19th century. Um, after 1798, the Middle East uh, is part of the modern world. And... Um, and now there's the colonial context. And so the 19th century is hugely well understood and uh, well studied. Um, the 18th century, not as much, you know? Uh, so this, I would say like the 17th and 18th century, especially in, in places like that are not at the center, that are more at the periphery, um, still need to be studied. And um, the more we understand about the culture of writing and the, the you know, the, forms of self-representation through bookish practices, um, the more we'll be able to make sense of his particular decision. Right. And, you know, of course, 
he could be an you know an outlier also in his to, to me this reads as if he could have written it in in our time the, you know the That's sense of self-reflection and and the pacing yeah. of it uh, the novelistic aspects of it it feels so contemporary. I agree. It and that's a question so that resonant. people have asked me. Yeah. Um, I, I've gotten this question from um, different people. Like, like, how did he learn to write like this? <laughs> you know, where, <laughs> where does this... Well, this did he go to an MFA to program? Come on. Yeah, exactly. Um, it doesn't sound like... Uh, it's not like a makama, obviously. Um, mm. And it's not a, a... It doesn't belong to any classical genres. Um, but it also like, so there's often a, an assumption that if he was so well traveled and if he was clearly given that he was a talented, um, uh, speaker, you know, someone who acquired languages easily, I mean, he spoke Arabic, he spoke French, he spoke Provençal, he spoke some Italian, some lingua franca, some Turkish, um, and all at the age of 19, you know, mm. um, so what did he did he read did he read texts in european languages while he was in france like was he maybe exposed to certain like uh collections of picaresque narratives is there any kind of um contact that way uh sort of west east contact was he influenced in other words by european literatures because he he does tell a lot of stories that are like non Arabic stories, the stories that he heard about, like, you know, the German soldiers and the stories of miracles um, in Italy. And um, so. Right. That, and that's the story of, the, of the, the painter and his lost love. But to right. me, uh, as um, Paulo Horta says at the end, that that did read like, um, um, oh, now I'm forgetting the traditional. Uh, uh, Layla and um, and a Majnun Layla that did read Majnun, like a Majnun, that's true, yeah. right? Layla story. So yeah, he's doing. To me, there's some hybridization there that mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't know. I, I would give him credit for inventing, as far as I know. But also, it's that question of like, did he, did he, did he pick up a storytelling technique in Europe? I mean, it assumes, and I don't know anything about, you know, I, I don't know anything one way or the other, but it assumes that there would have been, there wouldn't have been sort of all around the Mediterranean storytelling um, traditions that would already be like, you know, similar or complementary or, 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 or melding into each other or borrowing from each other. You know what I mean? As if, Hundred percent. Is it there's a sort of border that he crossed, and then he went into like a different way of telling? I mean, I I don't know. I, I that that doesn't seem. And I agree with you, Marcia, that the the book is so resonant to today. It doesn't feel like it's from some long lost, very different past. Well, one because it's so human in his sort of the way he presents himself in this self deprecating kind of sometimes funny, uh, uh, kind of honest way. And, and the world he presents and the power relations that he presents, like it's all very recognizable. Yeah. 
Yeah, I absolutely. I, I I completely think of him not as a tarjaman, but as a fixer. You know, <laughs> he's he's the fixer of Paul Luca, and when he comes in, he, when he parachutes in into a country where he doesn't know the language or how to get around. Although you know, Paul Luca does seem to be really good at, um, you know, accumulating valuable stuff. Yeah. Y- yeah. And to Ursula's point, you know, there's a lot of these little tags that he has or a lot of these little formulas that he uses um, that are, re- they're formulas because they, they reappear. Like when he says, let, let us go back to what we were saying, mm, you know, mm, mm. Um, that's, that sound like they come from, you know, they sound like established practices, established uh, formulas that one would use in a, in a complex story. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the sort of layering that he does, particularly as we talked about before, during the, you know, he's being picked up by the police, this, this other guy's uh, marriage woes, his own marriage woes, the way he layers those stories in such a complex way, um, it, it's, it's, you know, it's like a very difficult fictional technique, I think, to pull off without losing your reader. Um, and for this, and we have to give him very credit. natural. And mm, while sounding exactly. very natural, like this has a sort of like orality. I mean, I... Um, I've only read the first volume, but I was reading it on a trip with some people and I kept, you know, popping up from the book to tell people stories from the book. Yeah. You know, um, it's, it's great. You want to share it. Um, it's, yeah, yeah, this uh, is definitely, definitely the only LAL book that I have ever paused and read aloud to my kids. (laughs) Right. I think it's, you know, it's in all ages. (laughs) My uncle, um, my I, uncle, I the radiologist, the death scenes in Paris. Oh yeah, those are gruesome. Yeah, rolled in the wagon wheels. Ugh, oh. ugh, those are awful. Yes, yeah, exactly. Oh. I I have a relative in Chicago um, who's not an academic. He's a radiologist. Uh, my uncle and he um, read both volumes over the past month or so, and uh, would send me you know WhatsApp things every now and then being like i can't believe that scene that this happened or that happened (laughs) and that has never happened to me with any of my other books so uh (laughs) i think that that's like um speaks to dieb's um storytelling ability so i mean we'll we'll definitely include uh a link to the to everything we've discussed uh to the book itself um again it's an absolutely lovely and fascinating read um, and it's in this beautiful bilingual edition uh, from the Library of Arabic Literature and New York University Press. Um, and um, thank you again so much for, for coming on and talking to us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, thank you all for listening, and um, we'll be back soon. Bye. Bye.